Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. When I moved to the UK from Greece in 1990, the biggest cultural shock, and by a long way, the thing that almost made me pack up and move back, was seeing Cardboard City. I had never experienced homelessness at this scale. It seemed unfathomable that people in such large numbers would be so completely abandoned by state and family. Almost two decades later, I experienced the year of homelessness myself, and the system which creates the conditions for it came into crystal clear focus. That Britain is experiencing a housing crisis is something I have heard for three decades, and yet government after government, whatever their market ideology and however good their intentions, have failed to address it. I hope that my guests today can at least point us in the right direction. Catherine Ryder is Director of Policy and Research at the National Housing Federation. Welcome, Catherine. Good afternoon, Alex. And Steve Cole is the head of corporate strategy at the Clarion Housing Group, the country's largest social landlord. Welcome, Steve. Good afternoon, Alex. How are you? I'm okay. Um, Let's dive right in, shall we? Catherine, the, the National Housing Federation published a State of the Nation report in late 2019, which found that the housing crisis affected 8 million people in the UK that one in seven people were in unaffordable, insecure or unsuitable homes. Can you explain those terms a little? Yeah, thanks, Alex. I mean, we do have a huge housing crisis in this country, as you said in your introduction. And for many people, they will feel the impacts of that housing crisis on their lives every day. So you talked about the rough sleeping situation when you move to the UK in those cardboard cities. But actually, that is really only the tip of the iceberg. We currently have over 100,000 children in temporary accommodation. We have families in overcrowded homes that are not suitable for their needs. And then we have people paying 50, 60, 70 percent of their salaries on private rent, leaving them very little else to live on. So it really is, um, I don't exaggerate when I call it a crisis. And it's something we have failed to address in this country for decades, and it needs real sustained action now to resolve that housing crisis. It's almost the tip of the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Because then underneath that large uh, category of people who are actually in accommodation, there are thousands more who are sofa surfing or staying with relatives or, you know, depending on someone's kindness, basically, or, you know, going from rental to rental and who are basically on the verge of becoming homeless. I think that's absolutely right, Alex. There are so many people whose housing situation is really precarious, who are perhaps living in private rent just on a six-month contract and don't know whether that's going to be renewed, whether they're going to be able to stay in the home. As you said, there are people that are sofa surfing, relying on the kindness of friends and family. And then, as I said, people who are paying, you know, a huge proportion of their salary over on their rent. But it's the figure that always gets me, Alex, is hundred over 100,000 children in temporary accommodation Kids who don't have anywhere to do their homework, who are maybe sharing rooms with brothers or sisters, or in some cases, parents who just 
cannot get on with a normal everyday life. Mm. They don't have a home to call their own. I mean, for me, that is the real awful part of the housing crisis that gets me every time. Steve, how did we get here? This is effectively a large-scale market failure, isn't it? Supplies effectively failing to respond to, de- to demand in any way. What are the structural factors that cause this? Yes, there, there, there are many, I think. And I think one of the issues we've had sort of culturally and politically is we've taken a very much a silver bullet approach to it. So you'll see each of the 23-odd housing ministers we've had in the last 20 years will turn up and say, you know, it's quite the, telling in itself, right? It's it's the what is the highest churn department in government, mm. and it's a complex area. So everyone kind of comes in with one big splash policy announcement that they want to deliver, rather than you know a sort of really a really nuanced understanding of the problem. And mm. it's an interesting one because it's a simple problem, as you say. It's not enough homes in the right place, but the causes are incredibly complex, and they split into sort of three areas really there's one which is quite straightforward is a bit and you've seen this you'll see this in the budget when we talk about that is a shift in historic trends whether in the 1970s essentially about sort of 14 billion pounds per annum was invested in demand and sorry in supply subsidy so that was in Mm. building social and affordable housing and only about three three billion in demand subsidy which is things like housing benefits or um what you'll see is help to buy schemes and things like that that's almost entirely flipped on its head now so the housing benefit bill alone in this country is 23 billion pounds a year yeah Um, whether as the investment into new supply is now about four so you've seen a big flip in, uh, from government support subsidising uh, supply to subsidising demand. So the restricted supply has become almost a cash cow. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And you've converted a lot of that cash cow out of being uh, social or affordable rent housing, you know, traditionally council housing, and into sort of private rent. But I think also the other thing is people approach housing in this country as if it can be a pure market issue. And obviously supply is always going to be constrained because land is constrained and land is used for many, many things in this country. So it's you can't just marketize the entire mm. system. The sub-market part of uh, housing in this country needs to be supported in some way. Yeah. And so you've seen a shift away from supporting that sort of sub-market element and a move much more towards you know home ownership and subsidizing home ownership, which has helped to drive up prices. And then I think you've got a number of like macroeconomic factors so a big one is that houses are now assets in this country. They've shifted much more from being just a place where you live to being a financial asset that supports your pension, that supports the care services that you have, that that might be your main source of income if you're renting one out. So it really unbalances that. And it's very hard to actually depress house prices because they're so integrally linked to people's pensions. And to people's sense that they're doing well. Exactly. Because even if actually nothing has changed in your life, if your house value keeps increasing, even if that house is your main uh, domicile and you can't or wouldn't sell it, so you couldn't convert that investment into anything, somehow it gives people the sense that they're doing well. Indeed, yeah, and it, and obviously a sense that you've made smart decisions. Like you mm. know, I I'm I'm lucky enough to own a flat. I've I've got some uh, relatives who've congratulated me on the price of that going up. I didn't do anything <laughs> for that. I just sat there. You know, it was where I wanted to live. I ended up living. But that, but that is quite a peculiar thing, is it? Isn't it? This idea of bricks and mortar being an investment, and 
you know, the constant moving. I know only a handful of people in the UK, personally, I mean, who live where they did, let's say, 10 years ago. And I know only a handful of people in Greece who don't live where yeah. they did 10 years ago, even among renters. Even but people who I, rent in Greece are, are in the same place they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think you'd see that more in rental and social and affordable rent. People tend to stay in those houses much longer term because they have secure tenancies. They have, you know, the rents aren't suddenly going to increase substantially. They're not going to be, you know, told they have to leave because the house is being sold, that sort of thing. But then the other issue I guess you have in the UK is the economy doesn't overlay with where the most of our housing stock is. So we have a very unbalanced economy, very focused on the southeast and large metropolitan areas. And then you have a lot of housing stock in ex-industrial heartlands of the country where there isn't the employment to support the housing. So, so Clarion as a national landlord, there is incredibly high demand for our stock in, you know, in London and in Manchester and in big metropolitan areas. There's very, very low demand for a lot of our stock in more ex-industrial landscapes and ex-industrial places where you know, there just isn't that demand for the housing. So if we could literally just pick some of that up and put it into other places, these houses would go in an instant, but they're in the wrong geography. Mm. Catherine, there was a, a quite a comprehensive land survey a few years back, 2014, I think I wrote about it in The Guardian, that found that half of all rural land and more than a third of all land in the UK is owned by a tiny 0.6% of the population. And that, in fact, the top 10 landowners control more than a million acres. If you're looking at a supply problem, is there any sense in really looking at where supply is constricted? Yeah, that is definitely a really key issue, Alex, that we need to address. If we're going to build our way out of a housing crisis, which we absolutely need to, the only way out of this crisis is, is to build more homes and more affordable homes. We need to see land come forward and we need that land to be affordable so that mm. everybody needs to be able to kind of contribute to that development that we need to see can afford that land and can build on that land. And at the moment, we're not getting enough land coming forward and it's too expensive. The government and actually local authorities have a lot of land. So there's a lot of MOD land, for example, that is often suitable for development. And then we saw a really interesting report a couple of weeks ago from the archbishops, which also suggested that the church has some land that it could use for affordable housing development. So we need to see all of that land come forward and we need to make sure that it's released in a way that it doesn't just go to the highest bidder, because if land goes to the highest bidder, what you then tend to get is just big, unaffordable luxury houses that are not really the answer to the house. Because they need to make the money back, right? Exactly, um, right. So if you release land to the highest bidder, then you pay a lot of money for it. You need to drive a huge profit and you don't get the homes that we need to be building. I think also with that, Catherine, you don't necessarily get the quality of the home specified in that and it's one of the things that you know like nimbyism exists for a reason in this country and like and you often won't get the standard and the quality of housing that will make people accept them and see that they're actually housing benefits their local community and yeah. that way so it's a it's it has a second knock-on effect which is which creates that high level of resistance to new housing in places that often need it most like we often talk about housing in urban areas but actually rural areas have 
you know, huge disparities between house prices and rents and what the average local income is and huge levels of displacement of the local community. I have to say that's, again, I think quite peculiar to Britain because, you know, I've lived in three countries other than the UK and this snobbery towards you know, block developments, basically, it, it's not there. In Athens, it's not. In Athens, people are leaving sort of detached and semi-detached houses to move into modern flats. They, they sort of consider them slightly better uh, quality of living. Um, and I wonder if there's an element of class that plays into that, because looking at some of the housing developments from the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, they look to me, like a place of purgatory for poor people. You know, they look to me designed to be unpleasant and inhospitable because you you don't want other people to look at what the state is giving to, um, you know, someone who maybe is unemployed and, and think, well, why am I working hard then if they're going to get it for free? We have to, I think, move away from this kind of characterization of social housing as these big sort of estates where no one wants to live. Mm. And I do think attitudes towards development are changing. There's still a lot of nimbyism around. I mean, that is just a, and I agree with you, Alex, that's a really sort of peculiar thing about the UK. But I think it is starting to shift. And there is some evidence to suggest that people are more likely to support development if they think it's going to be affordable homes for people who are local to that area and want to stay and and to kind of put down roots and contribute to society so you know I think there is a perception that it's it's you know not something to be proud of Mm. and you do see some of these some of these kind of estates on you know tv programs that make you think like that but I just think it's you know it's we should challenge that perception that that's what social housing is because it absolutely is or that you've chosen a profession, and this is a point I, I want to make explicit, that you've chosen a profession like teacher or nurse or social worker, which simply will never pay enough for you to be able to buy a flat in London or central Manchester. And and that's all, not only something not to be ashamed of, it's something to be proud of, that you have chosen a vocation that will never make you rich. I think that's right. And I think what successive governments have done, not that not just this government, but successive governments have done, have to try and make it easier for people in those professions to try and buy their own home. So they've looked mm. at mortgages, help to buy, all of those kinds of things, when actually the answer for a lot of people is to build really brilliant, good quality, affordable housing that people can rent and they can stay in and they can make their own. And I just think that's not how successive governments have responded to this challenge of people not being able to get onto the housing ladder. They've just tried to make it easier and in many cases failed. So people just get stuck in private rent or in homes that are completely unsuitable for their needs. Catherine. Having shown that we can solve homelessness overnight during the pandemic, politically, how can any government go back to kicking people in the street? I really hope that they don't, because the Everyone In initiative was was hugely successful. The 
the political will and the momentum behind everyone in was genuinely really impressive for everybody to see and everybody played their part. So whether it was local authorities, charities, housing associations, local businesses who got involved, it was genuinely incredibly impressive to see. And it would be an absolute tragedy if, if the people who were helped by the Everyone in Initiative now find themselves back on the street. And I think one of the advantages of the Everyone in Initiative is it gave us a chance to get to know those people, to stop them from just being a statistic or someone that you walked past on the street corner to someone that was in a home whose needs could be assessed. They could be, we could get to know them as a human being and we could find out what it would take to put their lives on a better track. So my genuine hope is that we build on the Everyone in Initiative and we get those people into permanent homes with the support that they need. But I go back to the point that you made originally, Alex, we mustn't just view homelessness through rough sleeping. Families in temporary accommodation, sofa surfers, people over, you know, in overcrowded homes, all of those people are experiencing the housing crisis and we have to find a way of helping them. So the everyone initiative was brilliant but let's not think if we've solved rough sleeping then we've solved the housing crisis because that's absolutely not the case Hmm. steve what about disincentivizing the treatment of land as uh, or property as an investment islington council some years back was heavily criticized for measures that were seen as quite draconian targeting people who bought houses as an investment then left them empty and i think actually they failed to get the measures through because there was so much criticism. Is British law a little bit too respectful of private property? That's a very tricky question. Because obviously you have seen measures like that come in in New Zealand, you know, where they they were having a lot of uh, issues with that sort of overseas purchasing. I think the big thing with this, I, I think this is a slight sort of chimera of an issue like everyone talks about this as an issue of overseas investment coming into the uk and homes being left empty the reality is the amount of money involved in this is very high because Mm -hmm. it's it's super prime the the sort of areas are known as sort of super prime and prime so you know big fancy london developments big urban developments but the numbers of properties in that are not that high so the number of sort of these expensive luxury homes being left empty is is not a they would not solve the housing crisis if we could just move everyone into them. The issue is that we're not building and providing enough housing in the mid and the lower mid market and in the social and affordable rent space. So there may be an issue that some of this investment means that we are not building properties that would be better suited to the needs of the population because we're building these luxury apartments instead. But in the reality of where those are, the land values in those places, I think the issue is more that we would need to provide for the rest of the market than particularly concern ourselves with, you know, people coming over here and leaving homes empty. Mm. And interestingly, a lot of the homes that are purchased overseas aren't by billionaires and they often are rented out in some sense. So it's not the ideal situation, but it is not, I think, the issue that is often portrayed as in the popular press. I think it's, it's a bit of a red herring. Catherine, your organisation is quite heavily involved with a campaign to replace unsafe cladding of the kind used in Grenfell. I, I have to ask you, how is that going? What's the update on that? Yeah, it's it's a really challenging issue, Alex. And Grenfell was a obviously awful tragedy. And since Grenfell, we have uncovered many problems in buildings like Grenfell Tower. 
So buildings that have unsafe cladding on them. So the type of cladding that you saw on Grenfell was this cladding called ACM cladding. We found in our sector there were 157 buildings that had that ACM cladding on it. We have started work to take all of that cladding off in all of the buildings in our sector, so in the social rented sector. Mm-hmm. But we've since then discovered lots of other issues. So there is other types of cladding that we need to get off those buildings but the more we investigate and the more we look at some of these tall buildings, the more problems we uncover. So housing associations who we represent, um, and Steve, as you say, works for Clarion, the biggest housing association in the country, are working incredibly hard to make sure that these buildings are safe. But it's going to be a long programme of work and it's going to take us a long time to get through all of the issues that we need to deal with. And part of the problem is it's it's expensive and complicated. The government's put some funding up, which will certainly help, but it won't be enough. And there is also a limited number of people to do this work. So you need to go and look at a building and find out exactly what's wrong with it and what ne- work needs to be done. It needs a qualified fire safety engineer, and there's just not enough of them to go around to carry out those assessments and then people mm. to actually so it's hugely challenging, but but it is absolutely top of our priority. We're doing everything we can to make sure all of those buildings are safe, but it's going to take time and it's going to need a significant amount of money to do it. To both of you, that reveals a fundamental tension inside the, the housing debate, doesn't it? In that, how do you balance safety with the need to deregulate and speed up building. Do you you see what I mean? How do you avoid the big push to build loads of housing because we need it becoming the Grenfell of 10 years' time? There's an issue of, because the issue, particularly around Grenfell, was was A, I think we talked about this in the podcast with Pete Apps a couple of weeks ago, one of the major issues was the lack of clear building standards. And and so the lack of that lack of standard created a sort of race to the bottom. Mm. Um, and, and and there was genuinely illegal stuff that was done and is coming out in the Grenfell inquiry as well. So let's not forget some of this was, you know, potentially criminal. But the big issue is lack of clear and consistent standards. Other countries build high numbers of homes to a high standard. And the key marker there is it's just good regulatory standard, good quality building standards, easily interpretable, and then like a consistent strategic support from government and i think actually catherine talking about how homelessness was dealt with is exactly that that multifactorial all parties involved as equal partners you know government local government housing Mm. associations councils charities all pulling together on this one issue and this that's exactly where we need to be with the issues around cladding okay so finally to both of you Economics is defined by some as the the science of reconciling unlimited wants with limited resources. So I give you both a magic wand that can make one policy reality right now that will make a big, big difference. Steve first. Oh, that's a that's a fun question for a uh, head of strategy because usually I would consider it about making trade offs. I think rather than a single policy, rather than silver bulleting it, I mean. There is the obvious one of just invest more grant funding into uh, social and affordable housing. But actually, on a really basic level, a long-term strategy for increasing supply and quality of housing in this country, I mean sort of 10, 20, 30 years, 
Hmm. Um, rather than a series of fixed-term initiatives over the life cycle of a government and a sort of a long-term cross-party strategy that was locked in for the next 20 years. How about you, Catherine? So I'll take everything that Steve just asked for. (laughs) We'll have that as a given. So I am then, given my magic wands, I'm going to ask for the government to fund and coordinate all of the building safety work that needs to be done so that we can be really confident that those homes are safe. And then I think, Alex, some of the problems or some of the questions you asked about future development will go away. So let's make our buildings safe. Let's invest in them. Let's coordinate the resources that we need to do the work so that we can focus on building the new homes that we need, confident that the system is there, the materials are right, and they are the homes that people can kind of be proud of, be safe in, and call their own. From your lips, Catherine. Um, Steve Cole, Catherine Ryder, it has been an instructive half hour. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. Many thousands of people in this country do not have access to a house, but many more millions do not have access to the security that is necessary for a house to turn into a home. In ancient Greek, Ikos, or oikos, if you prefer the Erasmian pronunciation, interchangeably meant the physical building of a house, the people in the household, and the wealth of that family. Perhaps because the ancients understood that, without the security of a physical shelter, the concept of family may simply be theoretical. This is Alexandreou in the bunker, saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Music